welcome to episode nine of the Analytically Speaking podcast series. This episode will discuss the world of data analysis used for spectroscopy and other analytical methods. I'm Jerry Workman, the Senior Technical Editor of Spectroscopy and your podcast host. Thanks to our listeners for joining us for a deeper look into all things measured with light. Spectroscopy is the study of the interaction of electromagnetic radiation, commonly referred to as light, with matter. In this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rasmus Bro, a full professor at the University of Copenhagen and one of the foremost active living data analytics and chemometrics experts. Over the years, he has worked on many aspects of chemometrics, developing numerous algorithms and methods ranging from fuzzy logic, deep learning, analysis of variance, and tensor modeling. He has received numerous awards in chemometrics and in the analytical sciences, and is the second most cited scientist within the field of chemometrics, with nearly 37,000 citations and an H-index of 78. Most of the algorithms and data sets he has worked on have been made publicly available on the internet. We have invited Rasmus to our Analytically Speaking podcast to discuss his research on the development and automation of several chemometrics methods for use with any spectroscopic technique. Well, Rasmus, thank you for joining us today. And thank you for inviting me. I'm very uh, pleased and honored to be invited here. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Rasmus, could you tell us, our audience, a little about your history in exploring data analysis and chemometrics? Yes. Uh, so originally, I'm a, I'm a chemist by training or a, a chemical engineer, um, and I actually my whole education was actually planned towards uh, working with medical devices. I, I kind of uh, liked mathematics, but I realized that it was sort of useless. Well, that was my opinion until the last year at university where I heard a one-hour talk about chemometrics by a guy called Carsten Reda, who is kind of the founding father here in Denmark for chemometrics. And I was completely sold. And so I skipped everything that I had been studied for years, uh, and I just went for chemometrics. I saw that that was uh, where I had to go. And, and luckily, I got a job at the university I'm still at, uh, where my boss was kind enough to let me work with these things. So I've been digging into algorithms since then. Well, that's very interesting. Is it, would you briefly explain the generalized concept of how chemometrics is used for modeling spectroscopic data? Right. Well, yes. So we, I mean, I'm in a food department and, and we use uh, spectroscopy quite a lot for, well, for different kinds of things. The, the, the sort of traditional spectroscopic method in chemometrics uh, would be the near-infrared spectroscopy. And and some people, I know you, Jerry, are familiar with Carl Norris, uh, one of the, the founding fathers in that uh, area. He was actually able to sort of use his chemical insight to just pick out the right variables. You know, if he wanted to predict protein or, or fat or something, he, he would have enough chemical insight that he could pick the right variables and, and actually often some ratios of variables and do classical multiple linear regression. Uh, and, and if everyone had the same insight that he had, he had, well, maybe we wouldn't use the more advanced chemometrics. But, but what I would say is that the, the chemometric methods, such as uh, the regression method called PLS, 
allows us uh, more uh, uh, sort of uh, normal people to to actually achieve what an expert like him was able to achieve. So somehow the chemometric methods have brought advanced chemometric uh, advanced spectroscopic analysis to a much broader audience, and and that's also why it's so widespread today and and used in so many different areas. Don't know if I actually answered the question, but um, yes, I think so. Okay. Um, and you know, Rasmus, you've recently automated the analysis of several methods, such as parallel factor analysis, that's called Parafac, and Parafac two, calibration model fusion using PLS models, and automatically generating hierarchical PLS discriminant analysis models. Could you briefly explain what these methods are and how they can be automated? Right. Uh, yes. Um, actually, let me maybe start in another place. You know, as 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 most people are aware, there's currently a hype on machine learning and artificial intelligence, and 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 that's all fine and good. Part of the hype is that these methods are sometimes oversold, and 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 sold to people that are then relieved that nah, now I don't have to think about things. I don't have to think about experimental design, sampling errors, analytical quality, etc. And and when that happens, and I'm sure many of the listeners have, have seen uh, things like that, those projects typically fail because because these new and, and excellent methods don't actually sort of replace the responsibility of you to actually know what you're doing Um so that's not the way uh, that you can go about automating things, at least not blindly. But but I do believe that that we as chemometricians uh, spend a lot of time um, using our chemical uh, insight on things that are sort of trivial. And so I would like to automate some of the more established um, problems that we have. Like if you think about NIR calibration uh, models, we've been doing that for 40, 50 years. Uh, and, and, and in the most sort of trivial circumstances, that shouldn't be something we spend much human resources on. I, I, I believe that that can be automated. So I've been trying to automate some of the things that I have been working with. If, if we take Parafac, uh, uh, which is something I have worked a lot on, that's a method that is extremely powerful for analyzing fluorescence excitation emission data. And, and it's complicated uh, to, to do a Parafac model. You need to be a skilled chemometrician because it's it's a somewhat complex model. It's what we call a tensor model, and tensors are a little bit scary. Um, but on the other hand, if you have built a thousand uh, Parafac models of fluorescence data, you you get the idea of how you do that. So so the real trick, I think, is that if if the data is good enough. You know, if it's a standard fluorescence data set, and you would have to define what's a standard uh, fluorescence data set. But if it's a standard fluorescence data set, there's enough samples, they span what you're interested in, it has a reasonable complexity, then the modeling is a fairly trivial thing. And you don't actually need to be an expert uh, to handle that. And in those cases, we are actually able to take the experience of the experienced users and build an algorithm that automates that. And maybe now I got sidetracked uh, a little bit, um, but 
but this is the background for why we want to do that. And in the, in the examples that you mentioned that we have uh, uh, tried to automate, we use different uh, approaches, um, and and the automations have different levels of maturity. I would say some of them are very generic and very broadly applicable. Others are still methods in development. But but the basic thing is that anything that's remotely that feels remotely repetitive should be automated, I think. Just like in good programming, don't repeat yourself. And and the same goes with analyzing data. If it feels a little bit repetitive, probably it can be uh, um, uh, automated. And that's the motivation we had for this. It turns out then, as a bonus, when you do automation and it works well, we often know. Yeah, we often or sometimes found find stuff that we were not expecting. So it turns out that the automated methods can sometimes be better than us and, and in most cases at least much more consistent than we are. Well, that's, that's a very exciting. Um, you've really answered the question of why we would want to automate chemometric methods, but can you say some things about the advantages and the caveats? Yes, definitely. So, um, so the advantages is... You know, if you, if you talk about, uh, you mentioned Parafact 2, we have, we have tried to automate the use of Parafact 2 for modeling untargeted chromatographic data, gas chromatography, so GCMS, um, where you typically want to find, let's, it depends, of course, on what you're doing, but you want to find hundreds of chemicals. You want to integrate the peak areas and, and estimate the pure spectra, identify, etc. Um, this is something that a person would spend days on uh, doing. So, so, so per, people in, in companies, people in universities are spending days on analyzing one data set, turning the actual measurements into a peak table. That's days of a skilled scientist. And we believe that we can actually automate that completely. It's not perfect, uh, but we believe that it is way better than uh, the manual methods. And in in some of the comparisons we have done to our automated methods uh, with these uh, manual methods, we find that people often make mistakes, of course, because it's boring. <laughs> uh, and so, so people will often make mistakes uh, along the way when you sit and manually integrate or, or whatever is the, the job at, at hand. You, you, you're going to make mistakes. Now, machines are much better at not making mistakes when doing boring stuff. Uh, so, so, so the advantage is that we get much better quality. We get also, it turns out, often more information out than you would do manually. And it's cheaper because it only costs a computer. Now, the downside is that it, it, there's, there's, no, there's no room for surprises. So, so the models don't actually handle deviations from whatever you have assumed about the data uh, and the models are not perfect um, but i but i would say that now you can have an analyst look at the results of this and in 10 minutes uh, figure out is there would there be any remaining issues um, so so for, for many of these i don't actually see a dis a real disadvantage that they're not perfect any of them and they don't work for all types of problems they have assumptions but when those assumptions are met i i really don't see a reason why you want to do it let's say the old-fashioned way oh 
how do you really include years of experience in analyzing data into such uh, software automation? Uh, that is a good question. I, I, I think it's actually sort of simple. So meaning I, I don't think we are putting a lot of uh, experience in there. We're just putting the pertinent experience in there. So we're not actually... Um, it's it's not a it's not the models are not very advanced I would say but they just have the right kind of experience so 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 what is really important like for example if we talk about the GCMS data I'm not a GC guy and we would not be this is not me who has developed this this is me and many many people uh, PhD students and others over the years and I would think that for our GC we have at least been ten. Uh, PhD students working on that. So so even though I say it's not a lot of information, it does take a lot of time. That's another thing about these things. I, I, I started analyzing fluorescence data 25 years ago with Parafact, and I'm still trying to improve that and make it better. Um, the, the funding schemes of uh, research nowadays doesn't really take that into account, but but these things take time. Um, so it's it's a refinement where we try to to um, sort of make all the competences take part. So so you need to have chromatography. It's it's not a data analysis job to automate GCMS. You really really need to have information about the instrumental, the analytical, then the chemical uh, issues. And only by including all of that and 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 having these people talk to each other. Uh, you can do it. But my job is basically to listen to what a chemist is saying and then understand how I can express that mathematically. So when you listen to people complaining about, let's say, I build a PLS model and have people complain about that, I can, from the complaints, understand how can I actually operationalize that mathematically, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So so you've basically automated... Uh, the, the boring aspects so that you can generate a model, but it still requires human interaction and collaboration with domain knowledge. Is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Without that, there's nothing. And the, and the continued sort of development of this requires uh, a close contact with, with the domain knowledge. Without that, there's nothing. That's really maybe my main understanding is that without domain knowledge, you're going to waste uh, a lot of time, uh, I think. Oh, so you're saying that if you one uses automated methods, um, possibly you sh they should be avoided by people who have no domain knowledge or real understanding. Yes. Uh, well, yeah. The thing is, um, so if, if I my ideal is to develop met models that don't speak math but only speak chemistry. I believe that I can analyze chromatographic data in such a way that I only have to present, I, I only have to visualize things that make sense to a to an analytical chemist, and therefore the analytical uh, chemist should be able to, you know, complain and be critical about my results because they don't need to understand about tensors or about uh, component models and things like that. They can actually just look at it and chemically uh, understand what is happening. And in that sense, the methods I try to develop are aimed at the domain owners. Um, 
Now, it might be that someday you can just use it as a, a plug and play, but but really the critical thing for for these methods to work is that someone who is skilled in making a research project or a, 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 a in a factory or whatever um, in an industry understand how to do that. Um, you know, also as part of this AI deep learning hype, people will go ask you for numbers uh, to fix stuff, and and that really doesn't work. You actually have to understand, you know, these things like sampling error. Do I span the right variation? These things, and when that is uh, sort of uh, in 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 place, then these automated methods will work. But a, an outsider is not able to do that. An outsider is not able to run a chromatographic in, uh, instrument, for example. You actually need skills to do that. And if you don't have them, uh, the methods we develop are probably not going to work. They assume good data. Okay, interesting. And you um, you wrote a very interesting and well-known paper at, uh, entitled, Who is Winning? A Comparison of Humans versus Computers for Calibration Model Building. Could you explain a little about the theme of that paper? Yeah, that it's a very nice piece of work. It's 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 not uh, me. I was a co-author, but it's Morton Rasmussen who was the main sort of uh, had the main idea. We 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 teach chemometrics at our university to the food scientists, and we have several courses. So uh, we actually have quite a lot, but but in this context, we have a basic chemometric course, uh, and we also have a more advanced chemometric course building on that. So what we tried to do was to give students some uh, calibration task, uh, which in our world would be a classical PLS calibration task, spectral calibration task. Uh, and we did that to the students following the, the basic course, in, in, quite in the beginning, as I recall it. Uh, so they were not very skilled. Uh, then we also gave it to uh, students after taking the advanced course, so they're supposed to be more uh, skilled. And we also gave it to um, PhD students uh, working in our group. And we gave it to an automated machine learning method uh, for, for building calibration models. And the result was hmm, the result was that if the data is well presented, like you know a school book example, then you can give it to any monkey, so to speak, and, and it's going to be fine. There's no problem. But the more difficult the data is, the more critical it is that you have some understanding both of the data and of the data analysis. So we saw that the more experienced you are, the more difference it make, makes. But there's a lot of data, I mean, simple data, where anyone can build a nice model. So, so, so we still need the skills. Because as anyone working with real problems know, the, the data normally don't follow the school book examples. But if you do have that kind of data, then uh, you can do whatever. And, and that's probably also a hint at where my automated methods are working. That's mainly for well-curated data, I guess, uh, something like that. Well, I can note, note to our listeners that this paper is cited in the um, references and further reading section for all those who want to look that paper up. So, do you have any warnings to our listeners about applying deep learning or machine learning to chemical problems? And what what's the warning when using these powerful modeling methods if the data is sparse? Hmm. I, I think maybe I have a more general warning. Um, 
which is don't do black box, uh, black magic uh, modeling. Um, you do see a lot of bad applications of deep learning, but maybe you even see more bad applications of uh, the use of p-values and stuff like that. Um, and and it's all based on the fact that people are using methods they don't really understand. And if you understand what you're doing, if you're experienced in what you're doing, then all of these methods are very fine and very powerful, but you have to know what they're doing, what you're doing. And the problem maybe with the deep learning, but not solely uh, with that, is that it's being sold as a black box approach. Like you don't have to understand. And people overinterpret that as I don't need to know anything. Give me a DVD with your uh, or a USB with your with your data and I'm going to fix your factory. And, and things don't work like that. So I think my general thing, is, my general advice is just to be, be, be skilled in what you're doing. I, I don't mind if you're doing deep learning or linear regression or lasso or, or whatever, as long as you know what you're doing and you know the pitfalls, you know what you have to be careful about, I would say. That sounds like excellent advice. Um, what are some of your all-time favorite software or books or papers covering chemometrics? Huh. Okay, so now I think I'm going to reveal my age um, because the things that make, made the biggest impact on me was what I was reading initially when I was trying, I was desperately trying to understand what this PLS model was about and I really couldn't uh, figure it out. Um, eventually I managed and, and I would say one of the papers that meant the most for my understanding of PLS was a, a paper called PLS Regression Methods. It was written by Agner Huskelson in 1988, I believe. And it was, for me, it was a revelation. And maybe when you read it today, well, actually still today, I would say that it's an interesting paper. It presents a lot of insight. Uh, but at the time, you have to uh, remember that it was not well understood exactly what PLS was doing. Uh, but that paper really uh, nailed it, at least for me. And similarly, at, at that around that time, there was the book Multivariate Calibration by uh, Harold Martins and Tormut Ness from '89. I, that that everything in that uh, book was just extremely interesting for me, uh, and I learned so much from that book. It, that there are probably better books uh, today. Not that it's a bad book at all, but there's been developments uh, also by those two authors, um, and they have written other books. But that book was just that made a huge impact on me. And and. Sometimes when, when people think that that chemometrics is just about PCA and PLS and maybe some design of experiments, I, I, I like to point out the handbook of chemometrics and qualimetrics that was written or, or edited by Massa and, and actually a lot of other people uh, at the time. It is a very uh, rich uh, set of books. Um, it, there's a lot of information there about the you know, how widespread and how many subjects are covered within chemometrics. I, I really uh, enjoy uh, that a lot. Um, what else? Simon de Jong uh, is a Dutch uh, chemometrician, uh, and I would say I have enjoyed 
all the papers he's written. He's a, in in my opinion, he's a very insight or was a very insightful guy, uh, and I enjoyed all his papers uh, very much. And then when it comes to software, I will also reveal my age. I, I really like MATLAB. I've been using MATLAB from the very beginning. Um, when I did my master project in, yeah, I have no idea, 93 or something, I the, the internet wasn't really uh, so present at that time. But uh, there was something called Gopher, I believe. Uh, so that's pre-HTTP. Uh, and on Gopher, you could uh, download a freeware uh, software package called PLS Toolbox. So I got that, and I, I managed to manipulate some of the functions to make uh, sort of alternative versions of PLS for some uh, calibration modeling. And I've been working with the PLS Toolbox ever since uh, and like it uh, a lot, but it, mainly in MATLAB. I, I'm, uh, MATLAB makes it so easy for me to be creative, so I enjoy that. I, I don't have anything against Python and R, but I've just been using MATLAB for 30 years. So for me, it's an extremely powerful tool. Well, that's fantastic. Um, do you make some of your programs available? to? Uh... Yes, yeah, actually, we've been doing that since the very beginning. Um, so, so back in the nineties, uh, we were so fortunate that, that there was a guy in our group who was into IT and had a web server. So, right from the beginning, we started making our software and data available. We didn't really have uh, any particular reason for it. We just found it so interesting with this internet, and 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 it, it turns out that it was a very good way to quality control on your software because if if i have to put out if i make a pls algorithm myself uh, and just make it for myself uh, maybe i will cheat a little bit and it's fine but if i have to put it on the internet i actually have to make sure that it, it works and that it works correctly so it's a very good way to force yourself to be a little bit more structured than at least i want to be uh, it also turned out in in the end that probably was a good way to sort of uh, advertise our work uh, but that was not that was not really the intention from the beginning we just wanted to share everything and ever since that time we have tried to share all i mean every time i write a paper i put the software on our homepage and and the data if i'm allowed um, and it really really is a good way of building up collaboration and and it's a good way of getting other people to fix your problems because if i put my data on the internet then other people are going to make even nicer methods and even nicer tools for solving the problems i have and so it's it's just a win-win uh, so i really really enjoy that well thank you for sharing that um can you tell us what scientific committees or groups are the best to be involved at in related to chemometrics work Hmm. That's a good question, and and I think maybe for many years, I, I it, it's not that I tried to avoid chemometricians at all. Uh, I, I definitely did. Uh, 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 people will know that, but I tried to go to non-chemometric conferences because for me that was a very nice way to get inspiration. You know, going to 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 other scientific communities uh, trying to understand what they were talking about because they spoke in a different language so i went to psychometric conferences signal processing linear algebra all kinds of conferences and for me for many years that was a great inspiration and and kind of an easy way to sound uh, creative uh, because you you learn from from other scientific communities um 
So I, I, I act, I, I'm actually not sure I'm the best one to ask advice on committees and groups. I, we try to work with as many groups around the world. We always had a lot of visitors from all over the world. And and so we believe that we have friends in in in, in most uh, bigger chemometric groups, and we try to send our students out and to get visitors from those groups, and that that is just a it's a big inspiration to get people from other groups that come with other experiences. Um, yeah, so I, I apologize that maybe the the advice is not so constructive. No, that's a very unique way of looking at things, and it's it's, it's worked very well for you. Um, mm -hmm. That's interesting. Um, you've contributed a lot in terms of published articles and book chapters on chemometrics, and we've listed some of those in the references and further reading sections in this podcast. Um, in your opinion, is there still anything lacking in either the available publications or modeling methods? I uh, no, I, I like the list. Um, we do have. Uh, we recently uh, started a new website for technical reasons. We had problems with our old website, so there's now a, a new uh, website of the Chemometric Group where we're going to have most of our activities in the future. So, so I think we should add that to the list. Um, and also, I, I would like to point out that we have a YouTube channel. Um, we are somewhat active on the YouTube channel. Uh, we have whole courses on different things like multi-way analysis or, or basic chemometrics, how to build a calibration model, how to do pre-processing. And we also have something which I enjoy a lot, which is um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a set of uh, YouTube videos called Monday Webinars, where we get people from all around the world to give a presentation of something they're working on currently. And it, it was something that started during Corona as, as, uh, as is very uh, normal, I guess. But, but I still like it. It's, it's a good way of getting inspiration. Uh, and, and also you will see in that list, some of it is very chemometric, but there's also stuff from completely other uh, different uh, fields. And it's, it's one of the benefits, I guess, of Corona that that now the world is smaller in that sense, and we can have people give us a presentation uh, every now and then. So that's something we try to expand on this thing, and it, it it's run as a webinar, but when, then we save it uh, on this YouTube channel, so you can go there and watch all of these. Uh, that's a lot of uh, nice information. Well, that's interesting. We'll make sure we get those listed in uh, the podcast post. Um, you published a paper describing a solution to a common problem which a lot of people face. They're using chemometrics and spectroscopy, and that's maintaining multiple complex calibrations over time. In this paper, you suggested a new approach for rationally merging calibration models in order to optimally balance the prediction error and the maintenance workload. Can you explain this approach a little bit? Right. Yes. So, 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 so many, many large companies uh, are often running, you know, maybe tens, sometimes hundreds, and I even heard of uh, close to a thousand different calibration models. So that could be a thousand PLS models or, or neural network models or whatever. But, but each and every model, uh, those who have tried to implement um, calibration models, for example, in production, knows that each and every model needs to be maintained. And that's work, that's real work for each and every one of them. So imagine that you have 20 models. It, it becomes, 
it becomes cumbersome and it becomes uh, annoying or at least time consuming to maintain all the, uh, all these and and it's not really cost efficient uh, maybe and and what i've seen in several companies is that if you want to avoid that solution number one is to merge everything into one model and of course if that works and the results are satisfactory that's fine but it's not done typically because it's let's say optimal it's done because that's just the only thing you explore so either you do 20 individual calibration models that you need to maintain or you merge them all into one um, and, and what you will find well it depends very much on your case but what what you will uh, often find is that the merged model is going to be quite a bit worse than the individual models. So if you look at the error from the merged models compared to the 20 individual models, you paid a price for doing that. So what we did was that we developed an algorithm that will automatically take you from 20 through 19, 18, 17, etc., down to one model. So, so you get the whole path from what should I do if I wanted to have 12 models instead of 20 or if I wanted to have five models, etc. And what you often find, not always, but what you often find is that there's an optimum somewhere. So maybe actually you get better predictions by merging into free models because now you get, you get more data for those free models. And if the samples, underlying samples are actually similar, uh, then there's a benefit in the prediction error. And now you only have to maintain free models instead of 20 models. And clearly that's an advantage. So basically what we provided in that tool is a way to rationally and scientifically whatever go from 20 to 1 or 100 to 1 or, 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 or whatever is the case in a rational way instead of just saying okay only alternative is one model now sometimes you can actually deduce how you should merge and and often that works equally well you know i take all the uh, black models and put them together and i take the orange models and i put them together and it's gonna and that's actually gonna be a rational way to 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 model but sometimes it's not so clear and and sometimes it's not obvious what would be the the right trade-off uh and that, that this method can be really helpful Excellent. For, for our listeners, the title of that paper is Calibration Model Fusion, and it was published in the Journal of Chemometrics in 2021, and it's also in our references and further reading. All right. And you've published a paper describing how Parafac offers a very attractive approach for modeling fluorescent excitation emission matrices. Could you explain how this approach works and the advantages over other data analysis approaches? Yeah, thanks. That's a nice question, especially for me, because that's probably what I spend most of my uh, work life on is uh, Parafact. Uh, if I can start maybe by saying the reason I, uh, I, I sort of got into that is due to the fact that when I started working at the university, we had a lot of projects with fluorescence. Uh, because we wanted to investigate fluorescence as an alternative to uh, NIR, near-infrared spectroscopy. Um, and we were approaching that with you know, PLS models, uh, which is a classical approach for building spectral calibration models. Um, but it felt a little frustrating since uh, sorry, the fluorescence data that we measure, excitation emission, it's not really a spectrum per sample, but it's rather a matrix per sample. And so the data becomes a box, which is called a tensor or a multi-way uh, array. 
so so it always felt a little bit frustrating uh, and i had i knew about the 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 concept of multi-way analysis but i found it very complicated but i knew that potentially it could be interesting i struggled writing an algorithm uh, but i had a student a brilliant student who wrote an algorithm for a similar model something called Tucker, and made me so mad that he was able to do that that i finally decided i have to make a parafag algorithm and so i managed uh, finally uh, and and it turned out that it was fantastic on fluorescence data and it is fantastic because it allows you to do what i call virtual chromatography and which is really what it is you can measure fluorescence measurements on mixtures and then you can resolve them just like you do in chromatography but with parafax so mathematically you can separate the contributions and it has exactly all the problems or issues that uh, normal chromatography have you don't get real absolute concentrations you get relative concentrations you get areas or or, or, or similar or signal intensities um, but but it really ha has all the properties that chromatography has and it just turns out that a lot of fluorescence data on relatively simple data will behave very very uh, nicely and perfect therefore is able to give you the underlying excitation emission spectra for identification and the relative concentrations um, and i would say that it have it has changed the way fluorescence data uh, is analyzed in a number of fields um, most spectacularly in in environmental uh, monitoring uh, Where, where people are using fluorescence for monitoring dissolved organic matter. And before Parafac, the, the, the handling of the data was less than impressive. But now I would say that Parafac is, is the default there. And that's, that's what everyone is doing. Um, so, so I really think it, it became a game changer in certain ways of using uh, fluorescence data. Well, thank you. Uh, I'd also like to point out for our listeners that this is listed in the um, references and further reading sections. The title of the paper is EE Miser Automated Modeling of Fluorescence EEM Data. And that was in Chemometrics and Intelligent Laboratory Systems. So thank you. That's a, that sounds remarkable. Um, in another paper, you and you've mentioned that already in our podcast here, is that you applied Parafac2 for GCMS data. You know, we know that GCMS data can be really complex with overlapping retention time shifted, low signal to noise ratio peaks, et cetera. So what'd you learn from this work and what would you say are the advantages of using this approach? You're right, thanks. Uh, yes, we have been working a lot on that for the last 10 years or so. Um, and Perfect 2 was a method developed within psychometrics. Um, it was actually developed in 72 by a guy called Richard Hasman, a very visionary guy. He didn't, he didn't know how to make an algorithm for it. He just wrote down the theory and said, that's going to be interesting. Uh, and so for decades, uh, no one actually knew how to, to analyze data with uh, this algorithm because there, there was, well, there was no algorithm for co computing it. But, but, but we found that uh, um, later on in the 90s, in the early 90s, and um, 
it turns out that it just works remarkably well on GC data. So what you can, I mean, the problems you have with GC, especially untargeted GC, is that you have retention time shifts. That's one problem. You have low signal to noise. You have baseline. You have um, you have overlapping signals and stuff like that. And all of this can be handled by Perfect too. So basically. Uh, Perfect 2 is, is like a PCA model, if you're familiar with principal component analysis. So it splits the signal into some underlying entities. And you can split the baseline from the peaks. You can split overlapping peaks as long as they're not completely overlapping. I mean, they can be completely overlapping, but they can't have the same shape. But, but they can actually be completely uh, covered in each other. And, and you would still be able to recover that if the spectral uh, differences are, are enough to separate them. And so, so it's a little bit similar to what uh, we did on fluorescence data with Parafact. Then this Parafact 2 model can actually do something similar on uh, the chromatographic data. And there, the... The gain is much more profound. Uh, a lot of fluorescence data on, on relatively simple samples uh, is quite simple. You, you, you typically find that with the signal-to-noise ratio of uh, a, a particular instrument, you find 5, 10, well, 10 would even be a high number of fluorophores in a data set of whatever, wine samples or, or, or something. Uh, but of course, in a GC data set, uh, there's much more um, information and also we find there's a lot more information that is hidden that we can't actually see with our bare eyes. But with Parafact 2, we can dig that out. Sometimes we are surprised by what we find in the baseline, where on hindsight, maybe we can see that there's something, but we never actually identified that there was something. Uh, but since Parafact 2 sort of let's say conceptually it averages over all the dimensions, over the retention time, over the spectral domain, over over several samples, it actually provides a, a huge uh, sort of signal-to-noise uh, gain uh, by doing that compared to many of the traditional methods. Uh, so, so we find that we can find more information and actually also something which may not be totally acceptable to an analytical chemist to an analytical chemist but we don't, we don't have we don't have limit of detection in the sense that we quantify all compounds even when they are below limit of detection so i'm not i'm not, I'm not saying the concept of limit of detection doesn't exist but i'm saying we quantify all of them even those who are below and and that's important for us because we're not we're not doing analytical chemistry. We're using the, 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 the concentrations as patterns in some kind of uh, pattern recognition, like uh, some kind of multivariate models. And we would like to quantify all compounds also if they're below limit of detection. So limit of detection becomes a post uh, thing. It's, it's something you can decide on later if it's relevant to you. But for us, it's normally not relevant. And we would like to know the concentration, even if it's below limit of detection. Uh, so that's one nice aspect of this, uh, I would say. Following on the same topic, you, you have a well-known Parafact tutorial and applications paper. It's, it has over 3,000 citations. And um, you use the terms multi-way case and two-way case and multi-way methods and unfolding methods. Could you explain a little bit about what those mean? Right. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so so 
normally when you analyze data uh, traditionally you have a matrix of data or you have an excel sheet of data so that's a table of data now in our terminology we call that a two-way uh, data set because there's two entries maybe you have an excel sheet with different samples so the rows would be different samples and you measured some variables that would be the columns so you have a sample direction and you have a, a variable uh, direction and that we would call that a two mode uh, or two way case uh, meaning a matrix uh, and the reason we use that is that we can then also uh, generalize this if you have several excel sheets that could be a multi-way case so now i'm measuring uh, on all the samples i'm measuring these variables but i'm doing it at time point one two three four which then becomes different uh, sheets in the excel sheet and that would be a multi-way case it's also um, nowadays um, well let me back up and say these methods, were, uh, most of them were developed in psychometrics in the 60s and, and in the 70s. Um, a lot of the, the pioneering work uh, took place. And, and they often called them multi-way data. Um, later on, in, ke in chemistry, we, we looked into the same things. Uh, in particular, the group of Bruce Kowalski in, in Seattle looked into this. And they called them uh, tensor data. So um, a freeway... Um, array could also be called a third order tensor so that's another notation um, that might be a little bit confusing nowadays multi-way analysis has spread into all kinds of, of data science and machine learning and AI um, and, and in general in, in most scientific uh, fields it's now referred to as tensorial data so people will, would call it tensor data rather than multi-way data but in chemistry we, we are a little bit old-fashioned or historical so we still uh, prefer maybe the, the terms multi-way and uh, two-way now once you have extended you know, going from a matrix to a freeway array is that—that's a big leap, uh, perhaps. But once you have done that, it's very easy to go further on and say, "Well, I could measure this freeway array at different locations. That would give me a four-way array, or I could measure it uh, using different uh, chemical treatments. That would be a six-way array, seven-way array, etc." The, the extension to higher-order data is not very complicated. The big conceptual difference is from two to three but also the big gain i would say is from two to three certain things happen when you go from two-way data to freeway data and a lot of the basic concepts that people who are skilled in linear algebra are used to they suddenly don't apply anymore when you go to multi-way data that's actually also one of the things that intrigued me initially there were certain things that were unknown or mysterious and actually they still are sort of uh, like some concept of rank is very well established for matrices but not at all so for freeway arrays now if i uh, yeah let me continue and explain about the unfolding so so if 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 you don't have the tools to analyze your freeway data directly, which is often the case because in, in, in many available tools for analyzing data, you don't have that availability, then you need a way to rearrange your data 
into a matrix such that you can actually analyze it with more traditional tools because almost all traditional tools in data science are based on matrices on two-way uh, uh, arrays and therefore you need to have a way of turning your uh, freeway or nine-way array into a matrix and unfolding does that it's also more recently been uh, named matricization which sounds a little bit terrible, but but those of you who know something about linear algebra knows that there's something called vectorization, uh, and matricization is a similar term, where you, where you simply rearrange your freeway array in such a way that you can now uh, present it as a matrix. You basically put the Excel sheets next to each other, and then you have unfolded your data to a very long um, Excel sheet that you can now analyze with traditional methods. Now, in, in many cases, you would you would be more susceptible to noise, so you would you would find that your whatever you're estimating would be more noisy. But there's also so, some cases where you really need to do that uh, in order for things to be meaningful. So, for example, images are often um, multi-way arrays. If you look at a normal JPEG image, you can see that as X Y. Uh, um, coordinates and then J, uh, RGB, uh, which is a free-channel uh, sort of spectral mode. Uh, so that's a freeway array. But most freeway methods wouldn't actually work extremely well on that, and you would probably prefer to unfold it to a matrix and analyze it with matrix uh, methods. Huh. That's uh, that's fascinating. Well, in closing, Rasmus, what would you tell our audience is the big secret of applying chemometrics? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think I think the trick in uh, chemometrics is chemo, uh, and I really, really think that is what defines us. And it has always been historically. Uh, Svante de Waal, one of uh, well, the uh, the guy who who, who developed uh, the whole field, uh, was always very strict on the fact that we should remain close to chemistry. And, and I do believe that. I, I do believe that what is special about us is that we know the chemistry. We should, uh, we should develop and we should steal from, from statistics, from uh, machine learning, from AI, from computer science, from signal processing, from filtering, from time series analysis. All of that belongs to us, but we combine it with our chemical understanding. And that's what makes a difference. We use that actively when we analyze the data. So I think the big secret is understand your data and understand all of it. Understand how it was sampled. Understand how the measurements were done. Understand how they were. What the quality? What's the quality, etc. We have a tendency to, you know, we like that the samples are measured by a laboratory uh, with a fancy name uh, from France because then it's probably fine. But it's not fine. You actually have to to go in and take sort of control and make sure that all the data is meaningful to your context. So understanding data, I would say, is the big secret. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you, Rasmus, for this extremely informative discussion on your work. I'm sure our audience has learned a lot about advancing and automating chemometrics for analysis of chemical data. And your thoughts on this subject have been extremely illuminating. My thanks to all of our listeners and production and editing team that has worked to make this podcast possible. We invite our podcast audience to stay tuned to our next informative Analytically Speaking episode. 
And remember what Albert Einstein once said, it's not that I'm so smart, it's just that I stay with problems longer.